0: Okay, and understanding Rome, particularly with the epistles. What are we doing? Recording me? Yeah. On your phone. That's scary. You do all kinds of things. Uh, I have a reasonable fear of this, because when I came home this week... My roommates were listening to various sermons in slow motion. (laughs) (laughs) And they had a great time listening to the various sermons, like, slow and fast and and all other things. So that is why I'm a little bit nervous, cautious about what's planning on happening uh, with this whole audio thing. All right. So uh, the questions we've been uh, kind of operating off of a series of questions that we've been using. All of them we've put on the Facebook page so that you know kind of what we're doing. I'm about to combine three into one, which is a really bad idea, but I'm going to try to do it very quickly. The first one is: Does the role have an? Uh, does the church have a role and an obligation in healing racial tensions in our society? <clears throat> okay. So does the church have an obligation? and a role in healing racial tensions in our society. A question that we're really asking uh, a lot these days, particularly younger people, okay? And, uh, and I also <clears throat> had the question of uh, what is classism and the idea of us you know, sort of occupying these various social classes, and uh, what is liberation theology, and what are its strengths and weaknesses, and what does the scripture say about you know, poor people and poverty, don't even try to write all these down. Again, they're on the Facebook page so that you can have them on your own, okay? And then a third series of questions, which is uh, how has, you know, can we be too sensitive about racial issues? And how has the PC, political correct movement, really hindered our ability to talk frankly about racism? Okay, well, I'm going to answer all three of those in one. And we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit in our sermon series. By the way, I've asked a lot of people to help me preach this and like no one is responding. So I don't know what's happening. I know Tabby. Tabby, you and Chelsea are like the only people who've responded about preaching. Well, okay, well, that's basically no one. I have asked like 10 people and apparently no one wants to come and talk to you guys about race and fitness. I think probably many people are difficult. What? Yeah, we already have planned your sermon series way into the future once everyone is already bored with me. And the we I don't know. People don't want to talk to you all, young people, about race. Apparently, so I don't know what to do. I'm just gonna to continue to send emails out. But if you know of anyone, you know, is anyone really, who wants to come up and talk about this, you know, I might try to vet them. I might not. Uh, and uh, but I'm gonna start looking outside of our church. I, I, I've, I'm probably gonna ask the president of the NLCP, Willie. To come speak at one point can I share his story. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, a very, very active member of the community, and is very involved with the MLK. But I mean, you know, if I can't get anybody to talk about this issue, I'm going to find some people because it's not that I'm tired of talking about it, it's that I don't want you to just hear from me. That sort of defeats the purpose of uh, partly what we're trying to do and hear people's testimony and their experiences. Uh, so, and, you know, another way, of course, of that is that you actually write. Uh, some answers to my questions on the forum, which would be really great, too. Okay, Um, so I'm going to try to do all of those three sermons in one, and we're going to switch gears and go from some of this just really kind of theoretical stuff that we've been talking about, some of the basic stuff. This will be sort of the last basic sociological uh, sermon. And then from here on out, we want to address really, really specific issues on how does the church... Uh, You know, what role does the church have specifically in really healing some of the racial tensions that we have in our society? So we're going to talk real specifically. You know, we got one sermon series. It's all about how to minister to someone who's racist and how to minister to people who uh, are different uh, racially from you. And how should we think about dating in our culture when it comes to race? And some of these other really just kind of specific topics that address the issue of or the question of how as a church can we uh, really do Uh, what God has given us the power and ability to do in healing some of these things. So you can tell my answer to the question, of course, is yes, the church has an obligation and a responsibility, but more, in my mind, a great opportunity to heal racial tensions in our society. And if you have trouble with that answer, okay, maybe you're thinking about it in ways that are very political and or... Uh, ways that don't quite realize the goal of the church in the new testament which was to bring about the kingdom of god on earth that's just what the church was okay uh for god to use his people and and the church is is a tough term particularly in a society that kind of everyone goes to church. I mean, still about 70% of our society goes to church or is Christian. And so using church is itself a difficult thing because we tend to think of all these sort of structural, organizational things. But assuming for a moment that God has the ability to see the true church, whatever that is, uh, that goes across the sort of boundaries and structures that we have in society, the true church is absolutely (coughs) supposed to speak into this issue and, if not lead the charge, uh, on making our society a society uh, that respects and treats people equally. It just is. There's no way you can read through the New Testament and not pick this up, especially in a day and age where the average person in society had no political power. They had nothing. They couldn't do anything, Paul included. They had no ability... To enact you know legislation or to get legislation enact, enacted or to pretty much the only opportunity many of them had for political involvement was protest and protest was very very risky because one thing that you really have to understand about rome particularly in uh, the early first century is rome is first not a cultural hub but a military hub in The same way our society uh, you know, supports our culture and our mission through a very large, massive military, Rome was no different. And in particular, Rome was not a democracy. So people didn't go and vote and have rights uh, the same way that we think of our rights as individual equal voters. Okay. Uh, so, you know, to, to, to sort of see the importance the New Testament places, particularly Paul on a new earth, a new creation, a new structure, a new organization, particularly in a time and a day and age when they had no power, should suggest to us that that Paul absolutely saw the church as bringing about the kind of change that he saw society never going to make. And I think we're on the other end of this, as we have this real issue in the church today, as seeing the church as sort of a lagging organization, as a behind-the-times organization, as an organization that doesn't really... You know, isn't supposed to be involved in politics or isn't really supposed to be you know, enacting certain things. And so we look to our society as sort of separate from the church in order to accomplish what we want to accomplish. But, but the biblical uh, presentation of church, the ecclesia, the people called out, that, that was never in their thinking. That You couldn't separate the two as if they uh, you know, were easily separated into, well, you're a church person here and then you're a state person here. They were all wrapped up in one. And one of the really important things about the church early on was just how much they navigated the line between being a different kind of people within the confines of the society they were in. They just figured it out. They figured out how to be the kinds of people who were obedient in ways, uh, protested in ways. I mean, there's no way you can look at the martyr movements and not see them as protestants. People were protesting and gave the very best they had to give, which was ultimately their life, to protest some of the issues that the early Christians faced in terms of discrimination. But they saw that as arising out of the church, that the church would be the first and last place that the changes would happen, and that those changes, if society accepted them, that would be great. Well, that for us is very different in our thinking. We think about the church as very separate. We think of it as very insular. We think, well, yeah, we can treat each other this certain way, but outside of the church, there's sort of no rules. We'll just go you know, head on whatever down any path we want to in terms of trying to kind of get some of this stuff fixed. So we've got to understand that we're coming from a very different place, and we've got to try to reconcile that place with the place that the early Christians were coming from. if We're going to really try to understand some of the messages that they're giving. So let me give you a brief, brief and boring history of, uh, you know, Roman uh, first century uh, status and social class and things like that. So we've talked a little bit about Palestine. We've talked about the setting of the Gospels and how we've got these farmers and who are increasingly being forced to Hellenize and become more Greek. These huge cities that are popping up that are very, very reliant upon Galilee and its ability to farm and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. It's sort of like if you go into California and in between San Francisco and LA, two of our you know, larger cultural cities, is the stinky but beautiful valley of uh, the Central Valley of California, where like 70 to 80 percent of all of our vegetables uh, and nuts and things like that are made. No one really talks much about that area and no one really addresses much of what's going on there in terms of the migratory labor force and the kinds of uh, discrimination that people face in that area, but very much LA and San Francisco wouldn't be able to be the cultural and economic thriving points that they are without the Central Valley, yeah. which pretty much smells like cow poop at all times because of how much cow production and meat there. I don't know how Californians became vegetarians because they produce like most of the meat. Maybe that's why actually. Uh, you know, from their trip from LA up to San Francisco, they saw all these farms and they're like, okay, I can't eat meat anymore. No? Uh, my, my wife is telling me bad bad uh, illustration analogy. Move on. Thank you. I really needed that. So, this is the same situation we have in first century Palestine. Uh, we've got these big cities popping up. They're very, very different. Uh, many of you probably uh, would be surprised if you headed through the Central Valley, there are more Trump advertisements, okay, than you will see in all of the Dallas Fort Worth area combined. Because these farmers, they're going for Trump, all right? And you would think California, liberal state, that's not going to happen, that's not going to work. Well, there's, it's everywhere. I mean, every trailer that has been uh, abandoned and is rusting and twisted up has a giant, massive, you know, Trump loves farmers, he's going to give us water kind of signs. So look online if you want to. I mean, you can find this stuff, okay? So this is the kind of environment we have in Palestine. It's very, very different rural and city life. Well, in early Christianity, in Rome, you didn't have this same split. You had only urban Christians. That's it. So when, uh, for instance, Jerusalem falls in the mid-65 uh, 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 AD, most of the diaspora Jews and Christians in the cities, they didn't even care. What wasn't a big deal to them at all. Most folks deserved it. Those Galilean peasants should have risen up and fought against Rome. They got what they deserved. That's how separate these first urban Christians in Rome were from uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, Christians and Jewish folks who Jesus has spent most of his time So we kind of switch gears completely. We go from Palestine, which virtually has no slaves. I mean, less than one, you know, one tenth of a percent of slaves to the Roman Empire, which is probably about a quarter slave, okay, a huge slave population. Uh, some people always, you know, talk about why I just didn't talk about more about slavery. Why didn't he address it? Wasn't an environment where that even existed. It wasn't happening. Paul talks more about it because Paul's actually around it, day to day. And so in all of these cities that you go from one city to the next of the Roman Empire, they all have with them their separate culture, their political structure, their different, you know, sort of interesting practices and rituals, a lot of different people groups. These were urban areas, okay, and a number of things are important to recognize. But I'm just going to kind of point out one for these urban areas. Where in Palestine there were pretty much landowners, the aristocracy, and there were poor people, people who were farming, subsistence farmers. In the urban areas, you had this really interesting thing going on, and uh, and you know I'm going to use a technical term that I promise not to go into too far called status consistency <laughs> and what this ultimately means is that, that status was not so easily determined in the urban uh, uh, Roman urban Empire you couldn't just tell the difference between an arist- uh, aristocrat and a poor person there were a lot of intermediate levels not necessarily with income like we see in our society in our intervening levels but with status meaning that you could be a freed rich Person who was freed from slavery you bought your way out, okay, but still have zero status because you were free Because you had been freed. and you have a Roman citizen who doesn't have a whole lot of money. Who's a plebe or plebeian and Doesn't uh, uh, have much money, but has higher social status than the freed person simply because they were born a Roman citizen so you have these sort of varying levels of what's called status and this created a really interesting dynamic in the Roman Empire. One of the really particularly interesting things to me was that a lot of freed slaves in the imperial court, people who had worked for the household of Caesar, started marrying freeborn women. This became a very, very popular thing. So you've got slaves who are, have been freed marrying freeborn women. Okay, well, you'll say, well, why? I mean, if that doesn't sound that interesting to you, well, and this was pretty interesting. This was like a rich person marrying a poor person. Well, one of the main reasons that they did it is because a lot of these freed slaves from the imperial court had a ton of money. They were wealthy. If you were going to be a slave, you wanted to be a slave in Caesar's household. You just made a lot of money, okay? You just worked for your advantage. And freeborn women who would marry these freed slaves would actually have higher status than their freed husbands. It's a pretty good deal. Women, you get money, and you get to be the boss of the dude, kind (laughs) of. And you have this very, very common in a lot of Roman provinces, but particularly uh, the closer you get to Rome and uh, imperial. So that's just an example. That's just an illustration of the kinds of what's called status inconsistency there was. Yeah. How does that affect their children? Like what happens there? Well, your children, if you're born to a freed person or freed people, not necessarily Roman citizens because just because you're free does not at all mean you're a roman citizen and most people who are freed you know didn't become roman citizens this is one of the really important reasons why uh, paul throughout his letters talks about his citizenship it was very rare for not only a jewish person to have citizenship but a jewish person from palestine to have roman citizenship but his dad had roman citizenship which meant he had probably a little bit of money and who knows exactly how he got it because we're not told but Paul, as a citizen, would have been someone who not necessarily had a lot of money, because he certainly didn't, but have, would have had at least some basic status as a Roman citizen. And that was a big deal. Very, very big deal. Very few people in the early church were Roman, would have been Roman citizens. Okay? And uh, you know, I can't go too much more into this. If you want to you you know look into this or think more about it, you're gonna have to come to the Rome class where we talk about all these different distinctions and all that fun stuff. But the important point is that. Different from the area of Palestine in the urban area, you had a lot of status consistency. You had people who had money but maybe no status. You had people who had status but maybe no money. You had a lot of intervening things in between, which is a lot kind of like our society if you think about it. We have a lot of intervening variables. There's people who, uh, you know, maybe a professor of college, and so they have high status, but they make money like I make money, which is community college salary, a little bit more than minimum wage. Just kidding, it's not that low. Um, whereas I might have some status, but I don't have a lot of wealth or uh, you know, money to go into that, that, that status. And the same thing is true of people who are like celebrities, who have a lot of money, uh, but not a lot of status, so to speak. We don't tend to think of them as being very important for their you know, smooth operation of our society. They just have a lot of money. Okay. So status consistency is a really important point. I know that's technical, and I promise I won't teach anything more technical to you. Okay, so classism today. Americans are pretty terrible at recognizing the social class system. Most of us just sort of think we're in the middle class. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, most of us aren't in the middle class because the middle class has been shrinking ever since the 70s and 80s. We're pretty much either at the bottom in the working and poor classes or at the top, upper middle class or upper classes. Not in the middle class. Middle class kind of is an idea that we have about ourselves that isn't really true. <laughs> But Americans don't talk much about their money, and they don't talk much about their wealth, and they don't address that with each other, and we tend to think that's not an okay topic. And so we go on thinking that everyone's just kind of sort of in the middle. We've got those really abjectly poor people, uh, you know, and then we've got those ridiculous 1% rich people. But everyone, more or less, is sort of just kind of in this nice, smooth middle. And I would encourage you, if you think that way, to look at a video, just type in Google, wealth distribution and put Facebook, because this was a popular video on Facebook, but it was done by uh, some guys at Harvard, uh, economists, and it's a really good video that will help help you understand the social class system and our society. And We don't have time to go much into that. The point is, though, that our society looks like a lot of other societies in that we have a concentration of people at the bottom and at the top and not just a ton in the middle. Now. I'm not going to go more into that. I can't. It's not possible. I'll get into teaching mode and it's not good. So there's been all kinds of philosophies on our social class system throughout the ages. But two particular philosophies have stood out among uh, you know, social scientists. The one is that we need some kind of hierarchy in our society because otherwise who will do the jobs that no one else wants to do? Where do we put the lazy people? Where do we put the young people? Where do we put the new people to our economy? There's got to be a starting place for people. And so the class system functions as a way for people who are incoming into our society or who are lazy or who are not willing to be skilled or whatever else to start somewhere and then move their way up. Okay? And that's, of course, the the justification for uh, having a stratified or uh, social class hierarchy. All right? And that's the traditional view on hierarchy. Most Americans, whether they recognize it or not, believe that this is sort of how our society is organized based on hard work and skill and and this is a biblical christian idea why not paul talks a lot about hard work working with your hands i'm going to talk about that in just a moment and our society is supposed to be sort of broken up like that and as such these folks who traditionally uh have been okay with a class system in our society okay have been very resistant to changing much slow to change we don't want to change too much too fast because our system is more or less good it works it's progressive it's, it's fine, fine sort of how it is, all right? Slow but steady. And many of you who read the Birmingham uh, letter from MLK. He talks about this traditional viewpoint, slow but steady. You say, slow down, slow down, but now is the time to change. And of course, there's all kinds of problems with this, this, you know, I don't want to go too much into it other than just to say, I think we have plenty of examples in Scripture where the Holy Spirit works and works quickly and it's time to move on and switch up entirely. I think Acts 15 is a great example of this, where Paul, within a very short time frame, um, after the churches begin to evangelize urban areas, are like, all right, you know what, we're not doing this whole G- Christian people got to become Jews first, here are the rules for Gentiles becoming Christians. Boom, done, there's the council, let's move on. It was a very quick movement uh, to separate this, this idea of having to become a Jewish person as a Gentile before you become a Christian. And that was, I mean, the, the st- that, that whole debate, the whole argument, we, po- we can't even go into because of how detailed and, um, you know, kind of nuanced it is. The point is simply that the Holy Spirit was moving, it was very, very clear, and the folks picked up on that and immediately headed off the kind of discrimination that was inevitably about to come as a result of gentile christians and jewish christians fighting against each other Now you still get some of that in the letter sure but that was a decisive action and it's very clear from the story of acts the holy spirit led that and it was a quick change it's not an an almost overnight kind of change that happened uh, as a result of paul's first few missionary journeys and i'm talking about the council Right? The, the idea uh, that we give uh, sort of the three rules or four, more or less, in Acts 15, where we give Christians uh, this sort of freedom from having to become Jewish first and they can immediately become Gentile Christian. Yeah? You guys know about that? Right? No? Maybe? Possibly? Okay. Oh, man. I got too much history in my brain. I never know. On the other end, which is what many of you, young millennials in particular, are a little bit more comfortable with, is this sort of pendulum swing in the other direction from the traditional view. Society is more or less bad. You've got you know, you're the white dominant oppressors who are oppressing everybody and they're all bad people and we've got to try to lift up these subordinate groups and change and we need progress and all this other stuff. And the whole idea of this approach is very much that everything is about conflict. We've got to disrupt these social institutions. We've got to vote Bernie Sanders in and all become socialist. Um, very much quick change. Let's just do away with everything old, and it's just new stuff. We want new stuff, new stuff. We want this to be new, this to be new. Quick fix, quick change, uh, and uh, it's a very, very progressive to use. I would say a too positive of a word for this this idea. Uh, and and of course, this is this is just the dominant viewpoint for a lot of young people. Uh, it just is. It's just we just sort of tend to think like this now. Um, and without aligning any of these approaches with political uh, viewpoints, although I think it will be obvious to you uh, what, what approaches they would align with, um, this, is, this has created some issues of its own. And of course, number one is white people feeling the need to, to be guilty or white guilt, which we'll talk about later. Tabby and Chester are going to talk about white guilt, white privilege, and being woke. Uh, three three Ws. Uh, I'm sure you guys will like that. Uh, anyway. So as a result of this approach, white people are bad. Uh, and therefore you know we need to sort of uh, overthrow them, and uh, and we have this you know this sort of sense that. Uh, Um, You know, white people have been doing all these wrong things for so many years, and it's time for them to own up to it. And and I understand. I hear this a lot from white people who haven't really been faced with some of these facts and and figures. When they hear it, there's this sort of sense of guilt, this sort of white guilt. You know, we'll talk about that later on. I don't have enough time to talk about it now. And of course, that's okay, I guess, like momentarily. But white guilt doesn't do much for you unless you do something as a result of it. I would, you know. take you back to 2nd Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about the kind of repentance that that ought to produce action and and earnestness and readiness to see justice done. And so white guilt is fine I guess although I have all kinds of problems with the idea of white as a whole category that's somehow united. Um, As I mentioned last time one of the things that we miss in our conversation about white people is that there are a lot of white ethnics meaning that white people who more or less were discriminated against when they came into our society and who, when we separate from WASPs, those really, really rich white people, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, uh, don't do near as well as the rest of the white population. And, of course, statistics mask this, and intermarriage masks this trend and everything else. But for now, white people are bad, and uh, they need to be de- dethroned, right? <laughs> See? See? All I'm talking about there. <laughs> yeah, but a problem with this this viewpoint, um, I, I, you know, honestly, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to Jesus's parable about uh, the demon who leaves the man and then seven more come back. <laughs> People who align themselves with this this sort of conflict ideology often look to people and humanity as being able to fix a lot of these issues. And what happens as a result is often that people do what people always do, they just come up with a new system that's just as bad or as worse as the old system was. We've seen that a lot, uh, particularly over the last 30 years in some of our economic policies, particularly with the drug war. So. We've got to be careful with with taking any one of these approaches. Uh, simply, the traditional approach that says society is you know more or less uh, okay, that our class system is functions well, and there's no need to change, or this other extreme approach that you know everything needs to change, we need a whole new society, everything's broken. Um, we've got to be very very careful with the extremes, as the proverbs would tell us, uh, the man that avoids extremes is wise. I think I messed that up, but whatever. My mom can quote it, right, mom? She wasn't even listening. I caught my own mom not listening to me. <laughs> That's how boring this sermon is, is my own mom is not listening to me. She's doodling. Wow. Sometimes you just got to do it. You got to do it. So let me give you three biblical principles that I think will help uh, us avoid some of these polar opposite approaches here. The first one is that in the church, everyone has equal status and therefore equal concern. Guys, that this would have been one of the first things that would have been hammered home to the early Christians is really phenomenal. In a society that status was everything, that wealth itself, profession, weren't anything. Some people think Luke, who wrote one of the Gospels in partic- and possibly Acts, was a really rich guy because he was a doctor. Guys, most doctors were slaves. Okay? Well, most doctors were slaves. So, occupation, wealth, these were not significant factors in someone's status. What was significant was their status, which a lot of times was their ascribed status. What they were born into. Simple as that. And most societies on the face of the earth today and that have ever existed have been ascribed status kind of societies. Your status is simply... Your status from birth, moving on. And the m- m- little bit of mobility that you may have the possibility to achieve or gain pales in comparison to your birth status. Okay? And in our society, supposedly, we're not that interested in it. Problem is, we can still predict a lot of people's uh, outcomes simply from birth, which shouldn't happen in a society that apparently doesn't care about ascribed status. But a status was everything. So that the church would, from the beginning, make it clear that everybody has equal status. This is what what Paul means when he's talking about no slave, no free. This was a huge, or or neither slave nor free. Doesn't matter. This was a huge, huge, huge disruption to the social fabric of society. And probably one of the main reasons Rome hated the church from the get-go was because it equalized people's status. And you know to the point where a lot of the early writers coming from the Roman elites talked about the Christians as a bunch of poor people who were trying to revolt against the rich by saying that everyone has equal status. The problem with that is that's just not true. We can look back, literally look back at the names of people in the New Testament who were a part of the early church, and we can, with some degree of certainty, figure out what status they would have been in, some because of their name, whether their name was Latin or Greek or Jewish, and then with our knowledge of the cities that they were coming from, whether they had a household big enough to support Paul and his traveling companions. There's a lot we know about the social status of the early Christians. And what's very clear and really hasn't been clear uh, since really the last 30 or 40 years is that early Christianity was a very, very wide and diverse cross-section of the status uh, positions in society. You had rich, you had citizens, you had non-citizens, you had freed, you had non, you had a lot of different people. And this was the, the real brilliance of Christianity spreading in an urban environment, was you had the ability to put a whole lot of people together. Read 1 Corinthians. Most of the issues in 1 Corinthians are, are issues of status. Different people of different statuses not getting along with each other. Folks eating their private meals at communion. One of the really important things that an important person would do in Roman society was they would invite all of their friends and workers and people a part of their household. And then as a, a, a way to sort of make sure that they remembered and to show off their status, they would give portions of food based on the status. And so if you were a low status, you would get tiny, tiny portions of food and you'd be in a low spot. Right. And this was just a very, very common practice. And in fact, there were a lot written. From the philosophers of the day that were kind of saying these practices are old school they're stupid they're just meant to shame people blah 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 and you know you've got this kind of back and forth well what's happening during communion time at the church in Corinth folks are trying to do the same thing they're having their big supper meals they're not waiting for the folks to come in from work they're eating in the middle of the day, and then when the pe- people come in who are poor and had to work, you know, they're off in their own little section, kind of eating their little tiny meals like what we eat. I don't know what that says about us and our communion today. But um, actually, no, I, I guess we do have big bread, so that's good. Yeah, look at that. We're a tiny bit better than our other two churches uh, in terms of status. So that's good. A lot of these issues uh, from Corinth were coming from status uh, uh, distinctions between them. The lawsuits, all of these things. Uh, We're a matter of status. So the church was equal status to the church, therefore equal concern. The illustration of a church being a body. In Romans, Paul talking about where each belong to one another. That is crazy. If you were reading that as a freed person, I'm sorry, but there's no way you wouldn't be gritting your teeth reading that. You're telling me I belong to the lowest slave in my house just simply because he's a Christian. I mean, you know, you just that there's no way to read that in our own day and age and understand the significance of it. The Christianity turned the social order upside down in these households, completely upside down, and these scriptures that we actually ironically go back to. To say, well, you know, Paul was a misogynist and, you know, Paul was a racist. And were the very scriptures that the early church interpreted opposite of how we interpret them. But oh my gosh, did Paul just really say to the household that he ought to treat his slave, you know, in a certain way? I'm a household owner. I can treat my slave however I want to treat him. And in a lot of those slave master passages, the focus of the passage is instructions for the household owner. It isn't about slaves and about women and things like that. The majority of the uh, instructions are for the person in power to make sure that they are doing what they ought to be doing in this, this situation. It's upside down. It's upside down. Equal status in the church, therefore equal concern. Number two is we got to work hard and do well to provide for others. You see this throughout the Acts and in all of the letters. Uh our generation, I think, is falling into a trap that work is not meaningful. That hard work in particular is not meaningful. And if I have to work more than 40 hours a week, I am, oh my gosh, I'm basically a slave at my job. Well, we could go into a lot of the kind of environment that that, uh, that existed at the time. But I'll tell you that in urban Christianity, there really weren't that kind of poor, lower, uh, agricultural person the the poor people generally were laborers unskilled laborers I mean in Rome every time an emperor would come by or come through the pike he would tear down cities okay uh, and then rebuild them in his own name (laughs) cities were constantly changing names they're constantly new construction projects in fact our class talked about this I think two weeks ago but it's very likely that uh, that Jesus was a carpenter for a very large building project in Syria, and that uh, uh, um, you know, when he was doing this work as a young man, the first probably 15, 20 years of his life, he was building with his dad, uh, rebuilding Roman buildings uh, out in uh, in a Syrian area, a city that was very wealthy, had like a 400-person stadium, which was like unheard of. Um, and this is a lot of the kind of work that he would have been doing because you know it comes from an artisan family. Now artisan families in urban areas were kind of like as close as you can get to working class families. They had enough. They weren't subsistence living. They weren't hopefully one you know at the end of every day I hope to have enough food. They were working class. They you know paycheck to paycheck is the wrong way of putting it, but artisans who a lot of who made up the early churches, okay, craftsmen like Paul, tent makers, whatever. These folks who would go from one place to the next and work with their hands. They worked hard. Paul talked to the church at Thessalonica. I worked day and night. And when did I share the gospel with you? In my off time. No, while I was working. You had no other option. It wasn't like, well, I share the gospel when I focus on Jesus when I want to study, you know, when I have a two-hour break. It was like, we're doing this as we work. And when Paul would go into a city where there were no Christians before, what do you think he did? Acts tells us he went to the synagogues, but that's a little strange considering Paul himself never really says that uh, in his letters. And so maybe Luke was trying to kind of, you know, I mean, who knows what was going on there? We don't know. There's not, there's a whole lot of conjecture in terms of why Luke focused so much on the sort of synagogues in each city. Most likely what Paul would do would go into a city. He would go a part of a guild or a union where there were other tent makers and just start meeting people. And that's how the gospel spread from one city to the next. Paul simply ministering to people at work. And we're ministering to people everywhere but work. (laughs) Because we think people at our work are unministerable too. I don't know how to say that, but you know the point. Right? The whole idea was work hard and do well to provide for others. And to see your job as the place to spread the gospel we need to repent of our attitude about work both in our inability to work hard and our ability to find god at work in the place we're at the reason we don't find him is because we often ignore him or don't bring him with us uh and we're not paying much attention to kingdom values in our workplace so equal status in the church therefore equal concern work hard and do well to provide for others it's particularly funny when paul comes across these philosophers who are just sitting around talking right (laughs) Here's a man who's working hard, you know, uh, intentionally won't take money from certain families, particularly in Corinth, because he doesn't want to get too caught up with them. Apparently, there were a lot of wealthy families who would have loved to bring Paul on and then begin to influence him, you know, because that's what patrons would do, right? Patrons of a household would bring people on to do various tasks and work and things like that. And sometimes the task wasn't really necessary. They just kind of did because they had money and wanted them around. Uh, But Paul resisted that in Corinthians. And very much uh, accepted that in places like Macedonia and the church at Philippi. But but they were working. So equal status in the church, therefore equal concern. Work hard and do well to provide for others and to share the gospel at at your workplace. The third one. This one's going to seem kind of out of place, but I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit. Only the Holy Spirit can draw people to Jesus. Jesus says very clearly in John 6 that the Father draws those who he draws. He just does. He's the one who draws people. The Spirit is the one that convicts of sin and of righteousness. And one of the issues I think that's sort of creeped into our, dare I say, liberal mindset, for many of you who are young, is that if we can only get people into a better circumstance, then they'll be ready to accept the gospel. I'm not saying that it's you know, not okay to help people and to provide for their needs. But when I place people's acceptance of the gospel contingent upon their circumstance I've inserted my own idol and my own human work into God's work guys not only is that an absolute slap in the face to the millions of people on our earth now who are Christians despite the kind of poverty that they experience but it's certainly a slap in the face to the early Christians many of which who had to work very hard live in very difficult situations, not the least of which because they are being directly persecuted after a while. And it's sort of a slap in the face, the fact that the people who are most religious in our society are poor people, are minorities. And so this idea that we've got to get people into a better circumstance and then they'll be accepted the gospel, or we've got to kind of present ourselves as the church in a certain way so people will you know, accept the gospel... It's just not right. The Holy Spirit is going to call people to see Jesus as He wills. And when we insert ourselves into that work as if it's contingent upon us being, you know, presenting the gospel in a perfect way or along with cultural standards or taking care of people's physical needs first, you know, and then hopefully they'll be in a position to accept the gospel, we insert our own humanity in this equation. Paul says it very clearly in 1 Corinthians when he talks about God making it grow. And we just simply water uh, and plant, and God's the one that makes it grow. We need to come back to a conviction that people are drawn to God by the Holy Spirit. And not because we're cool or politically correct, or because we uh, you know, have enabled them to be rich and upper class, and whatever all of the other things that we decide that if we just have a perfect society, then people will come to God. If we can only take care of these needs first or present ourselves in this way first, then we'll be good. Uh, We've got the order of that a little bit wrong. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm saying? Is this kind of confusing? My wife's looking at me like with the most confused face I've ever seen. I'm just asking the rest of you. Got it? Yeah? Good. As long as you've got it, Austin, we're good. I'll explain what I mean here. So I want to give you three good trends in, in our society and their temptations, and I'll end, end with that. Uh, so good trends, trends I think that are really positive in our society and in the temptations that come along with those. Uh, number one is, is social and political engagement. It's no no secret that millennials in particular uh, are not very politically engaged and haven't been for a long time. But this last decade, it might... Estimation seems to be a kind of renewed interest in social and political engagement. I think that's great. This is a wonderful trip I don't think uh, you know, we can call that a bad thing at all. I think it's great as Americans as uh, You know living in a democratic society We have a lot more control than people who have lived before us and who have lived currently To change the things that are going on in our society. We just do how much control we have particularly with the presidential election versus like a local election well you could get into all kinds of arguments about that but this renewed interest in political and social engagement i think is very important not the least of which because it encourages us to be involved with each other in civic ways something that we've kind of lost a little bit in the boomer generation people actually hang out with each other doing stuff you know uh, outside of their work that's a good thing to me that's a good thing voting protest. I mean, some Christians might seem to have a real issue with the kinds of protests we see today, and I have no issue with nonviolent protests. I think they're absolutely important. I think the Jews did it in their time. I think you could say and make an argument for the fact that Jesus protested uh, some of the, the things that were going on in his society, although maybe not as overtly as we do. But then again, they didn't have the chance to. I think this is a question we can discuss and we can talk about certainly. Protests is a very important form of political engagement, particularly if it's nonviolent, particularly if it's uh, of the kind that you understand pretty clearly where the values are. Uh, This Black Lives Movement uh, has been good in a lot of the uh, messages that it sends our society. Uh, The Blue Lives uh, Movement, as a result, I don't think has been good. I think it's silly. Um, But there are plenty of organizations and groups, a part of the Black Lives Movement, that are not good. And the Black Lives Movement, if it's even a movement, is a real large umbrella term for a lot of good and bad stuff that's happening in our society. In the same way the Civil Rights Movement was that way. And M. O. K. Uh, had some of the most harsh criticisms for those people who uh, were his peers who were going about protests in very, very unhealthy and unhelpful ways. And so I think it's okay. I think protest is really good. I think we've got to think through that, and we've got to be involved in it. Here's where I think this, uh, you know, very not-so-great temptation comes into play. We love to talk. Talk, 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 talk. And talking is like the easiest way to be involved, and often the least effective. Talk, 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 talk. We want to post stuff. We want to comment on stuff. We want to talk. Things that are going on. Scripture seems to be pretty clear about avoiding useless chatter. The kind of chatter that addresses only ideas and hypotheticals. And does very little in the way of changing people or making them move forward. But it's just simply talking heads. Talk, 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 talk. Jesus, in Matthew 9, wisdom is proved right by her actions. One of the things I would really encourage you to do if, you, if you've if decided as a result of this series to go back and read through Mark or the Gospels is notice how many times Jesus calls the generation corrupt. I think sometimes we read through that and we think, oh, well, that's all of us. You know, he's calling all of our generations corrupt. And certainly times I think he is. But there are specific things that he's calling corrupt in this generation. And one of the biggest is this inactivity due to talk, 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 talking. Talking about this issue, talking about that issue, talking so much that there's no action. And if we're not careful, guys, particularly those of you who are young, you'll do all your talking and absolutely nothing about it. And I'm so tired of reading posts of people who are so against this or so against that. And then behind the scenes, they'll message them and ask them, so what are some ways that you've gotten involved? Well, you know, I I haven't really gotten involved. I'm working on it and blah, blah, blah. How can you possibly have such a strong opinion when you've done absolutely nothing in the lives of people you're talking about? How? That is top-down, silly, ineffective way of talking about dealing with these issues. It's the lazy road to dealing with these issues. We feel good and we can express ourselves and move on to the next social issue. And unfortunately. Millennials' generation is a faddish generation when it comes to politics. You guys were into sweatshops in the 90s and then green technology and now we're on to race. But what's next? Are we really going to deal with any of these issues at a real core level, at a structural issue? Or is it going to be the news of the month? And then we're on to the next topic. And the next topic. And that's a real problem. Wisdom is proved right by her actions, Jesus tells us. And he's telling it to a generation that's wicked And saying that they're just saying both, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. In that passage. It's Matthew 11, I'm sorry, I think I said 9. Or Paul, when he comes to Corinthians, when he comes to the church at Corinth. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Shall I bring a whip? (laughs) I'm about to get active. You guys have been talking, but I'm going to come and I'm going to be active. And guys, if we're really concerned about some of the issues that we talk about, we've got to get involved in those things. And it doesn't mean we go join an organization and spend 40 hours of our week being involved in it. If we do what Jesus did, did. we find people are in and around our lives who are... Res- I can't even speak, I'm tongue-tied, but you know what I mean. Who are experiencing the issues and we get with them one-on-one. Jesus did not make a whole lot of political statements because what he did was he made his statements through the lives of individual people. He didn't get up in front of a crowd and tell the crowd what they wanted to hear and rile them up and get them going. The Jews were already riled up at that point, and they were heading to their own destruction in 30 years. Jesus knew better than to try to get the crowds riled up. He riled people up through individual acts of kindness in his life as he ministered to people. And he made his social statements to the lives of individuals. Individuals first and then issues as we move out from there. And too many of us, we want to start the other way around because it's easier. That's why. And we we have this idea that somehow we're going to fix something from the top down. Really? How? What kind of arrogance do you have to have to think that's going to happen? That your Facebook post is going to contribute to this totally getting turned around? It's the things that you do. It's the way that you live. It's joining with Jesus who enacted the civil rights movement, guys. It wasn't us. We didn't do that. It wasn't even black people in our society. It was the Holy Spirit working through people in our society to enact that movement. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that the Holy Spirit is working continually around us. That God cares about these things. But your talk is your talk. Second good trend, but the temptation that follows is immediate information. We can immediately get information about stuff. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. And most of it's inaccurate or not very useful information. And so we love, we just love to kind of throw out our data for people. That's not nuance. It ignores a lot of stuff at the same time as it informing us of certain things. We have immediate information. We have the ability to just look something up and immediately get stupider (laughs) by learning the wrong thing and then deciding that wrong thing is actually reality. I tell uh, my students in class all the time, you know, we make fun of villages and things for their uneducation, but Google is our local witch doctor. As soon as we're ready to prove something to someone, we run up, get on Google, find the first source. It could be like, (laughs) Wronginformation.org, but <laughs> we're not paying any attention to the URL. We just want information that proves our point. And so, while immediate information is great, many of you talked to me as a result of the uh, thing that we did a couple weeks ago about the current state of race in our society. It was eye opening for many of you. That's so good. And your eyes need to be opened. You need to understand this stuff. You need to understand when we're making arguments about stuff and you don't even begin to understand the basic statistics of the, of the topic. What are you even talking about? How do you even have the right to talk? You've done no research. You've gotten on faithit.com. What is that? <laughs> I don't even know. What is that site? Okay, don't get me wrong. Okay, some of you liberals are like, oh yeah, bad site. Well, when our media is pretty much only liberal today, pretty hard to find good information. Well, they're back at you. you got to run over to Fox News, you know? It's just <laughs> tough, man. No? we got one news source telling the truth. That's it. <laughs> Guys, with our immediate information, there's the temptation to be very, very arrogant about our views. One of the things that I think is so... Indicative, particularly if some of you who are pretty young and you're posting about stuff that you have very little interaction with, is just the arrogance of the types of things that you're saying. That somehow you're the first person to be concerned about this. Yeah. Somehow you're the first person to point out this issue. Gosh, that is so anti-Christ in its spirit. Paul, remember in 1 Corinthians 8, says knowledge builds up I mean, it puffs up, puff puff, 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 until it gets popped, which happens with some frequency in our conversations with each other. But love builds up. Anybody who thinks they know doesn't yet know as they ought to know. One of the best lines in all the scripture, and it's in the context of talking about love, that knowledge has a way of tricking us into thinking we know something that we don't know yeah. at all. But love Focuses us on building up ourselves, our understanding of the world. And for any of you who've done, you know, for those of you in graduate school, I think in particular, you know this. You get into school, and there's this part of you that really kind of gets impressed with yourself that you're learning all this. But if you're honest, there's another part of you that recognizes, oh my gosh, all the stuff I learned in undergrad is like not right. Yeah. <laughs> or is like so much more complex than that. And I have more questions now than I have answers. And so educated people are tricky because they can be some of the most biased and ignorant people there are. Because they have a little bit of data that someone else doesn't have and they're going to use that over you to impress you. They don't care if it's accurate or not. We are not rational people when it comes down to it. We're pretty irrational in our way of thinking. I think that's part of the reason why science can be a really great balancing force for us. But we've got to not be arrogant with the information we have, guys. We need more posts of people saying, look, I'm just trying to kind of figure this out. Um, Trying to understand this. Here's what I've seen. Humble. Not the kind of arrogant, I gotcha! Kind of stuff that we love. Whatever. You're uninvited to my next sermon, wife. Next week, you're not allowed to be here. My last point. Okay? Uh. And I'm preaching this just for Lorraine. Lorraine's not even here. My goodness. Who is she? Where is she? At a wedding. Oh. Is our concern for consumption. I think this is a very positive trend in our society. That young people care about what they're consuming. Or kind of. I've seen a lot of you at Walmart. I know you don't care, all right? Now, why was I there? I'm just looking for y'all. So I can tell you, you need to get out of here and go to Target. Everybody is prettier at Target, okay? That's just so true, right? I didn't get a very good laugh, I don't know. So, our concern for consumption, I think is a really good thing. In fact, uh, we were talking in one of our classes uh, on Palestine in the morning, and I would kind of done this funny little thing with them where I was like, well, uh, you know, what did you guys have to eat, and, you know, Cassandra had, you know, some stuff to eat, and the guys hadn't had anything, and so I asked Cassandra, you know, well, why is it that you stole food from them? And, of course, it's still food, but, you know, when you were uh, uh, in Palestine, in this whole idea of kinship reciprocity, which we talked about, people just don't go without. If people go without in your clan, that means someone has too much. And this idea, I think, in part, is creeping back into how we think about our consumption. And that is absolutely great. Yeah. Sorry. Our concern for consumption. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing. It's a good trend. Yeah. Yeah. We need to be concerned with it. We need to understand, the, the uh, as best as we can, the product chains and where stuff comes from and how people are being oppressed as a result of the things that we're using. Now, you could spend your entire day doing that. So I'm not suggesting that we all need to go out here and everything we do, it's just not possible guys. But we have to be reasonably concerned about this using common sense to understand there are plenty of resources and sites to go to now that where you can try to kind of understand the product chain. Not to mention the fact that a lot of, of, of companies have been have been pressed to at least pretend like their products are uh, sweatshop free. But we've got to be able to, to kind of keep, uh, you know, um, the fire on those organizations that are doing that—I think that's really, really good. And concern for consumption is a big deal, particularly as we are more and more global, globalized, and understanding that a lot of these political conflicts and even refugee stuff, some of which uh, is directly resulted to our uh, economic uh, concerns in those places, and being able to recognize that and address that—these aren't just political infighting. They have a lot to do with American interests economically overseas. And to to try to understand that and figure it out. Not with a sense of shame or guilt or, oh my gosh, I can't consume anything now. But with a sense of responsibility that we have as Christians to make right uh, some of the really messed up social structures in our society. And that's really encouraging, I think. Uh, So, anyway. The temptation there, of course, is, is this sort of disunity and self expression that comes from that. I talked to my students some about, you know, that we, we t- say one of our values is uh, equal opportunity. And some of us believe it, some of us don't. But a much stronger value for us is individual achievement, which can be very contradictory as a society to the idea of equal opportunity. And so, Sometimes when we are concerned for certain things that are going on in our society, it's nothing more than us presenting ourselves as better than we are, as unique. These are my set of social causes that I'm interested in. I'm better than you because you're not interested in social causes. And again, it's, it's, it's this, this very sort of self-focused, self-interested, here's my list of all the things that I'm engaged in and doing. But the reward in using that to compare yourself to others is just that, that you compare yourself to others. And when they realize that you're not even that involved in those things, you just talk about them, your reward's gone. And then comes the humiliation. But the real reward is being God's ambassadors in, in areas that we've chosen. And I don't think very many of us can be that involved in very many social causes. Perhaps rather than talking about five or six, some of us ought to at least just go out and do something in one area, with one person, or one organization, or one something, research of course first, but to be able to actually uh, pay attention to what's going on and be completely okay at the end of the night that I'm not involved in every single thing, uh, new trend that comes our way. Gotta be okay with that, certainly have to be okay that I don't have all the information on the most, you know, uh, recent immigrant issue, that I'm willing to listen to you because this is something that you're concerned with, great. And it's not a battle of who's got the best opinion, uh, but uh, where we can actually teach each other. It was very important. You go back to Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 just to close up, and you can kind of read through this as some of the issues that were going on uh, in the early churches. They had kind of picked their issues, and then their issues were a little bit more about purity and not so much about social causes. And then they began to kind of judge each other based on who was the most pure. Who was eating food sacrificed to idols? Who was this? Who was that? Who was drinking? Well, we do that same thing with with social causes, and it absolutely causes disunity among us. This might be kind of a weird ending in terms of a passage, but 1 Corinthians 6 talks about a lawsuit among believers. And it's a passage that very few of us have found applicable to our own lives. And yet, it's a passage that really has huge significance for the way the church ought to interact with our society. Because guys, racial reconciliation, which is a weird term, healing the racial tensions, that starts in the church. And it goes out from there. And unfortunately, the church has often been behind the times and it's been forced on us by a larger society, but that should never be the way it is. The church shouldn't be resistant to that kind of change. But it's got to start here. If you believe that Jesus is working in the church as his mode for redeeming society and humanity, it starts here. We need to get on the same page with some of this stuff. It's not okay for us to have wildly divergent views, and then to run away from the church and go do our own thing in the state, as if that's normal and okay. It starts here, and if we can't figure these issues out within the Church of God, we're desperately lost for trying to do anything in our society. Because the change won't be lasting. It won't be built into the fabric of who we are. And that's what Paul's ultimately talking about with these lawsuits is, what are you guys doing? You're going out into the state to handle these conflicts with you. When these conflicts should be dealt with in-house. You have much stronger loyalty and ties to each other than you have in the state. So what are you doing? You're defeating yourselves. Wouldn't it better be you be wronged, treated unfairly by someone who's a person of God, than to be able to get it right legally? And that's a real tough challenge for many of us. Who see our faith as very separate from uh, our statehood or our citizenship? And it starts in our hearts and goes out. It's the same way. It's this is the kind of reform and protest Jesus practice. We talked about it. it. Starts in the heart and then it goes out from there. And this is something that I think we as a church have to continually figure out, particularly in a day and age again where there's just not a lot of civic engagement and civic involvement. Because how as a church, how as a group of young people, can we really begin to mirror the kinds of changes we want to see in our society? What do we do? How do we make that work? Because it's always going to be easier to launch onto some website and say something. Or to join some organization and not have to deal with those issues at home, here, in our own midst. And for those of you who think those issues are fixed already here, then you come talk to me and I'll give you lots of examples of how they're not. But that's where we've got to start. Because if it can't be done here with the people of God who have the power of the Holy Spirit, we have no hope as a society for those changes to exist. And maybe they'll happen, but they won't last. Yeah. We've got to build them into the fabric of our churches. And we go out from there. And that's really what we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. Is how do we do that as a church? How do we start with the individual and move out? How do we start with the church and then begin to really make that applicable in our society? And uh, to give you really kind of concrete examples, we're going to take communion. Those of us, uh, those of you who uh, you know haven't been here before with us, we take communion uh, a little bit loud and uh, rambunctiously, not uh, meant to make the moment any less sacred uh, or um, important. We just simply believe it's a community meal, and all of us together uh, take it. To remember that, uh, you know, that Jesus is who he says he is. He is our unity. He is our peace. He is making things new, even when we don't feel new. uh, And we don't feel like things are getting new. He is still there making things new. And that's what we celebrate in communion. Is that new birth, that new creation. uh, That one day uh, will absolutely blow us away and our understanding of what Jesus has done. So we just do that as a community meal. We'll we'll have this side go first. Uh, You can get up and you'll take the bread, you'll dip it in the juice, and then, you know, you guys can go as well, and then we'll kind of come back. Those of you who do the communion, as soon as you're done, try to come back to your seats uh, because, you know, we always have sort of space constraints in here. Lord God, thank you so much for the way that you work. And Lord, will you guide us and give us wisdom? We care about the things that are happening in our society. We care about the injustices and the unfair treatment that people get. Teach us to care at an emotional level that deals with names and faces, not with issues, structures, and organizations. Help us to make significant changes in our body that challenge society at large. Help us not to be behind the curve and behind what you're doing, Lord, but to be on board with it and to constantly be moving in the direction you want us to go and to be sensitive to that. Help us to know uh, what to think politically, To not just side with what we're comfortable with, but to pursue you and to pursue your wisdom and your guidance. Help us not to be straight ticket voters, people who just mindlessly vote for people we're uninvolved with and unconcerned with, but help us to really look into the issues, to understand them, if nothing more than to know new areas that we can be involved in and around us, for protecting people and loving people. Treating people with equal concern. Now drive away our arrogance and our pride. And the feeling that we know something and that we are something. And just remind us of our dignity and our worth in you. Well, we love you and we take this as sinners, people who mess up daily. And mess up in all kinds of creative ways. And that you would still love us and be merciful. And that you would use us is really remarkable. For apart from you, we admit we can do absolutely nothing. But in your kingdom, nothing is impossible. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.